thanks for pressing play. How does the U.S. Navy deploy surgeons on various naval vessels across the globe? And how do maritime deployments impact a Navy surgeon's readiness? Are there practical doctrinal and tactical solutions that can be implemented to address any gaps in knowledge, skills, and abilities? Stick around and find out. Welcome to War Dogs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a first-hand, behind-the-scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. Military Medicine and War Docs present a Ready Medical Force Special Collection. We speak with the authors of recently accepted journal articles addressing the key readiness issues in operational medicine and discuss the importance of their findings. On this episode, we speak with trauma surgeon, Navy Captain Matthew D. Tadlock. Matt is the chair of the Joint Trauma System Committee on Surgical Combat Casualty Care. He discusses his military medicine paper, the impact of the maritime deployment cycle on the surgeon's knowledge, skills, and abilities. I'm your host, retired Army urologist, Dr. Doug Soderdahl. Today, we're privileged to welcome Navy Captain Dr. Matthew D. Tadlock to War Docs. Matt, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, today we're going to talk a little bit about your paper that talks about the impact of maritime deployment cycles on surgeons' knowledge, skills, and abilities. First of all, what led you to write that article and what concerns or questions were you trying to answer? Yeah, so one of my co-authors on this paper had looked at the lead up for deployments across the three services for Army, Navy, and Air Force surgeons, looked at what their practice patterns were at the MTF and how it sort of diminished as they prepare for deployment. And they found that there was no difference between the three services. And I know the pre-deployment cycle for our maritime surgical teams, and I don't think that they were included in the study. So I wanted to do a follow-on specifically looking at our maritime surgical teams because I know what the pre-deployment cycle entails for them and pulls them out of the MTF for clinical practice. I think a lot of people are familiar with how surgical teams are deployed in land-based operations, but how does the Navy routinely deploy maritime surgical teams? It, It depends on the platform. Right now, not including the hospital ships, we have three basic surgical teams that deploy in the maritime environment. First, we have our aircraft carrier surgical teams, or or CVNs, and they're part of the ship's company. And whenever the aircraft carrier goes out for any reason, there has to be a surgical capability aboard in case there's a mishap on the flight deck or anything. We also have our casualty receiving and treatment ships. Those are our, our big deck amphibs or the smaller deck amphibious vessels. They take Marines where they need to go, and, and if there's casualties, they need to be able to have the space and, depending on the mission, the personnel to take on casualties. They're manned by a fleet surgical team, which is not part of ship's company, but it deploys with the big deck amphibs or the smaller deck amphibs when they deploy. We also have our version of an austere resuscitative surgical care team. It's called the ERSS. It's an Expeditionary Resuscitative Surgical System. And they're designed to go in any expeditionary environment, land or sea. And sometimes they can augment one of these other surgical teams or 
go on a, a smaller ship such as a cruiser or a destroyer that typically does not have a surgical capability or really the spaces. It's very, very expeditionary and austere. This paper focuses mainly on the aircraft carrier surgical teams and the fleet surgical teams. So you said that you know, you're focusing on pre-deployment training. What is the pre-deployment training for surgeons who are going to be deployed in the maritime in- environment? And does that preclude the ability to do surgery while they're training? Yes and no, but mostly yes. And what do I mean by that? So the workup to go out to sea involves a lot of certifications. For example, pilots need to get their aircraft carrier quals to land on the flight deck. Same thing for the big deck amphibs. They have helos and vertical lift aircraft. And so there's a Each section needs to do various certifications to prepare to deploy. The line thinks of the medical department in a similar fashion. So when the medical department goes out to sea, important training goes on how to manage a mass casualty within the ship spaces. So they work all those things out. They move patients and they practice those protocols for if something were to happen. But none of it involves any clinical care. So for an aircraft carrier, even if it goes out for a week, a month, and it's not a deployment, They have to have a surgical team aboard. It's a little bit different for the big deck amphibs, but the fleet surgical team training is a lot of team-based training so you understand the platform that you're on. Um, None of it involves clinical care. And if you go out to sea a lot, it really pulls you away from the military treatment facilities. So as you can imagine, if you have an elective practice, you have to dial that down pretty quickly to prepare to go to sea. So it's very hard to have an elective practice. So hopefully the military treatment facility that you're keeping your skills at has an acute care surgery team or some way for you to just take call and get cases. Now, when you're out at sea and let's say you're 50 miles off the coast of Norfolk or San Diego and you're doing training, whether or not, like let's say a patient comes in with appendicitis, whether or not you do that appendectomy or that patient gets sent back to the MTF via helicopter to get their appendectomy is highly variable. It's not standardized and it depends on often the commanding officer of the ship. So even if there were an opportunity, you may not be able to work with your surgical team in your, in your deployed environment. And often those patients will get sent off the ship. That's another project I'm looking at and we're, we're pulling that data now, but, but that's sort of the environment. Do the reservist surgeons in the Navy that are deployed in a maritime environment, do they get the same training as the active duty? We don't routinely deploy reserve surgeons for a a deployment. So I don't know how to answer that question. I've been paying attention to this for about 10 years since I was a carrier surgeon. And so I could go to fellowship. A reserve surgeon came on board and covered one of my brief underway periods. But I don't think that happens very often and only occasionally. So it's mainly, act, these are active duty billets and, and potentially a reserve surgeon could cover an underway period. But I think the schedules are often unpredictable and that's hard to synchronize that. I was able to do it once, but it doesn't happen routinely. So looking back at the times of high op tempo in OIF and OEF, 2004, 2007 timeframe, How did that operative experience differ between those who are on ships and those who are in land-based medical treatment facilities? It it would have been likely very different. There's not a lot of papers out there looking at the surgical care at sea, but 
mostly during that time period, the aircraft carriers and the big deck amphibs were not receiving casualties. It's rare from, from the war. So they were dealing with standard emergency general surgery, urologic and gynecologic emergencies, and then some routine elective general surgery. So the case mix deployed would have been very different. There would have been very little trauma. So in your paper, you make the point that leading up to deployment for that first six months before you leave, the case numbers go down between the two groups of the maritime deployed and the land-based deployed. However, the starting point, six months before deployment, the number is still pretty low as cases per week. It was something like one case per week or three cases per week. How does Navy Medicine address that? And are they sure the readiness problem is not just in leading up to deployment, but maybe the whole experience? You know, I didn't get into that in my paper because there's plenty of other papers looking at the decline of surgical case volumes in the military treatment facilities. It's a problem throughout the military, and you can just do a literature search to look at that. I wanted to highlight that it's much worse for our fight tonight, ready to go out the door, maritime surgical teams. It's an issue that's pervasive throughout the military, unless you're at a very busy MTF, such as like BMC. Your paper does mention the KSA scores, the knowledge, skills, and ability scores, which is really a project looking at the number of procedures to kind of gauge the experience and repetitions of certain cases that surgeons are getting. And you noted that the KSA scores in the folks that were deploying did not meet the minimum KSA score that was the threshold. Well, and actually, some of these maritime surgeons were doing so little in the MTF because of their deployment cycle that they did not even generate a KSA score. You also mentioned that Navy medicine is undermanned in certain specialties, especially surgical. How do we keep the people who continue to deploy because there's not enough people to continue to deploy on these cycles. How do we keep them engaged? Yeah, it's a difficult problem. And since we wrote this, the manning's actually worse. And one of the points we make in the paper is we have a number, at least just with the Navy alone, not the Marine Corps, we have a number of expeditionary surgical team capabilities that we have the ERSS, we have the carrier surgical teams, and we have the fleet surgical teams. And there's more coming down the pipeline. We will have a, a role to enhance team that is going to be able to go on those these newer ambulance ships that are coming down. And they're all man-trained and equipped differently, and they have a, essentially a different TICOM. And one of the points that I make in the paper is, given our manning shortfalls, if something were to happen right now, it would be hard for each of those platforms to deploy rapidly. And so I make the point that one, one way that you can ad address these pre-deployment surgical team clinical sustainment shortfalls is to have a standardized maritime surgical team, which is essentially what the ERSS is, but that goes and goes on the carrier. It goes with the fleet surgical teams or it does the ERSS mission. And then you have essentially a medical group that is in a standardized training cycle. So you have your teams that are going to go on the deployment, but during the ship workups, when there needs to be a surgical team, a different team takes care of those and they deploy at a later time. So you divide the work. And so more teams are spending time 
in either military treatment facilities or military civilian partnerships. And you utilize that resource appropriately um, because it is a resource. It is a limited resource. That almost makes too much sense. So what is the pushback to not implementing something like that? Is Do the, the carrier groups say, no, no, we're much different from the amphibious ships. We need our own separate training. What's the pushback? There's how we've done things for years. And so I think surgical teams on the carrier, they're routinely part of the medical department. And the surgeons play a very important role. And so it's hard to look past that and say, hey, well, you're going to have somebody just come on that you don't know come on for a brief period of time and then a different team joins for the deployment. So I think some people may have issues with that. The system I have, I have proposed or we have proposed in this paper, one of our maritime surgical teams is actually going to do just that. So our West Coast fleet surgical teams are in the process because each surgical team that deploys on a, on a big deck amphib, they're man trained and equipped differently. So what they're going to do is create a med group for all of the West Coast Fleet surgical teams, they're going to train them all the same. When they go out for workups and not deployment, one team will go out so the deploying team can stay back and continue to train. The other thing that they're going to, to likely do or they're planning on doing is for the surgical assets of the fleet surgical team, so the core fleet surgical team, which is very similar to a seven-person ERSS, is they're going to plan them to have three-month deployments and rotate them. So some of the stuff in this paper is being implemented, just not as broadly as I described. And so you plan to report that after you've kind of done this pilot? Yeah, hopefully we'll be able to get some data. I think, you know, in the next year, I think it's going to start being implemented. So we'll have to see how it works out. One of the things that I thought was interesting in your paper, and we see this in the Army and Air Force as well, is that a lot of times residents are getting deployed right after they finish their residency. Why is that a significant concern? You know, it's interesting. There's a lot of ways to look at this. I, I think at the completion of a, a general surgery residency, in, in some ways, you're as ready to deploy as you're going to be throughout your entire career. You have just finished doing a lot of cases, you know, big cases across the spectrum of surgical oncology and trauma. You've had recent burn unit experience, at least within a couple of years. And then you ha have a fair amount of ICU experience. So from that perspective, you're as ready to go as you're going to be. The, the difference is you're deploying in an austere environment and things are just different than they are in a CONUS hospital, a major MTF or whatever civilian hospital you trained in. The resources are different. The considerations are different. So from a surgical skills standpoint, I think you're good to go. It's just some of the complex decision making, be it in an aircraft carrier on blue water with an inability to, to medevac a patient off that you're going to have to hold on to for several days, or even in a land-based environment, some of those decision-making issues are going to be very different in an austere environment, any austere environment. It's ideal to have more experienced surgeons go on some of these deployments. And, and that's been a focus of our general surgery specialty leader and the detailer. Where they can, they've been doing that. But often, one of your first deployments or your first operational experience is going to be on one of these maritime surgical teams coming out. Um, How well does Navy medicine do teleconsultation or telemedicine? So can these deployed immediately after post-residency graduates, can they phone a friend from these ships to ask a more experienced provider to say, hey, you've had way more experience dealing with this in the middle of the Indian Ocean or whatever. What should I do? 
So first of all, we have access to the advisor line. We have access to BAMC Burn Center. We, you know, we can do an email teleconsult. It really depends on the comms that you have. Many, many surgeons know people at the MTF that they trained. So they'll go back and phone a friend. Like, for example, when I was a ship surgeon, I had to deal with an ectopic pregnancy and a testicular torsion. So I went back and called the OB-GYN on call or the urologist on call and just discussed what my plan was and, and how to manage those patients, et cetera. There are availabilities. It, it depends on the comms that are available. At a minimum, you should be able to email. But as for the future fight, we may not have those communications. And I think a lot of teams are, are training to not have those communications. And so that, that pushes the need, I think, for better training or experience in some of the things that maritime surgeons are going to deal with that they don't get experience with in their routine practice and their residencies. Uh, one, one thing that we've done to sort of mitigate some of these things, so having a junior surgeon straight out of residency go on a maritime environment or et cetera, through the Navy medicine clinical communities, I chair the fleet surgical subcommunity. And over the last couple of years, it sort of parallels this project. We've created the Maritime Surgery Quality Improvement Program. And what is that? So we've tied it with the FST and carrier surgeons OPPE cycle, your standard privileging process. So they have to submit the cases they do at sea. We have been collecting data for this on about a year. So there is some data from case logs that we've been able to get or some papers that are published, but now real time, we're getting these cases. And, and what we do is we have a quarterly, it's not really an M&M, we call it a process improvement conference, where difficult cases, so a, like a septic knee joint or hemorrhagic shock after an ectopic pregnancy, these, these cases that we don't normally deal with in our general surgery practice, they're presented to the group of current maritime surgeons. And we're able to share lessons learned throughout the maritime surgery team community. In fact, I have a conference later today that we're going to do. So we do that quarterly. So over the past year, we've had three or four or five conferences, and it's been very successful. And that's mitigated some of these gaps where you just show up on a ship and then you go out and deploy. So you mentioned one of your doctrinal suggestions with train, man, and equip surgical teams for maritime deployment. Are there any other doctrinal solutions that, that may help address what you're concerned about? I really think that we need to have one maritime surgical team, and that's my number one recommendation. I think we need to have them all manned, trained the same, and, and then we divvy them out as necessary, be it an aircraft carrier, a fleet surgical team, or the ERSS mission. That becomes difficult because the air part of the fleet has their own type commander and they man train and equip differently and the the surface force which deals with the amphibs they man and train equip differently and and they don't but but I really think that that's the solution so what do your findings suggest need to be studied to ensure a medical ready force in the future you mentioned a little bit about this quality project that you're working on but what do we need to look on or what do we need to look at in order to better understand the problem better make suggestions and change things for the future. So if you look at the, the clinical readiness program and the knowledge, skills, and abilities, so the, the, the clinical KSAs, we have that data. 
and it's the best for surgeons, right? Because that was the KSAs were created for surgeons first. And there's there's very good studies looking at the decline of KSAs within the MTFs. So I, I think we need to overtly seek out more military civilian partnerships for our surgical teams. I, I think with the MTFs and KSAs, we're in the midst of a chicken or the egg sort of debate. Some people feel that they're aren't as many KSAs going on at the military treatment facilities because people have left to go to military civilian partnerships. I think the opposite is true. I I think providers have been seeking out military civilian partnerships because there hasn't been as much going on in the MTF. I think we as military medicine need to truly define the problem and and then maybe we can get to an answer. The other thing I would say is in terms of the military treatment facility, if you think about the the clinical skills that a- any provider is going to need for the future fight, and that's trauma, that's burn resuscitation and burn care, and that's critical care. Those are skills that in most MTFs, there's not a lot of trauma, burn, or critical care going on. There's a few. Obviously, there's BAMC, the only military burn center, and that's a level one trauma center. In the Navy, we have N- Naval Medical Center Camp Lejeune at Camp Lejeune or NMRTC Lejeune. And that's a very busy level three trauma center. And it really, they, they do a lot of outstanding care there. But the patients often, often move on to a, a level one trauma center. And so there's still not that, that prolonged care, or prolonged holding of very sick patients. And so I think we need to have robust, busy MTFs. But I think for, for some of the things, trauma, burn, and critical care, we need to have more military civilian partnerships elsewhere. One of the things that is not really covered in your article is simulation. Are there efforts ongoing to provide training in scenario-based simulation environments? So looking at the cases that surgeons do while they're deployed, a lot of them are maybe an appendectomy or an acute abdomen or routine hernias. But not uncommon, surgeons at sea have to deal with hand injuries and fairly significant. You can imagine that Hands are getting smashed in hatches and partial amputations. And then I, earlier I mentioned the occasional gynecologic or urologic emergency. And so I think this, that this is an opportunity for simulation to sort of up those skills for those providers before they go to sea. And in parallel with this project, with this paper, I mentioned the Maritime Surgery Quality Improvement Program. Over the last couple of years, I just completed a American College of Surgeons Surgical Simulation Fellowship, and I've been taking the data from, from the Maritime Surgery Quality Improvement Program, and I've developed a one-day, both cadaver and stimulation-based course for maritime surgeons that focuses on some of these skills. And I'm an asset plus course director, so it's designed to be an extra day after an asset plus course and sort of complement what goes on there. And we, through simulation, we discuss the management of various gynecologic surgical emergencies and urologic emergencies, and then also some additional cadaver-based training for hand injuries and other things. I call it the ES3 or the Expeditionary Sea Surgery Curriculum. The, the nuts and bolts are there, and I hope to, to pilot the first course in the next year. Is the funding there for that? And are you able to run the course? And can deploying providers get to that course? So that's what I'm going to be working on over the next year. And I'm going to present to the appropriate TICOMs 
here's the gap, here's the course, this is the cost. And a number of leaders have reached out to me and said, hey, we, we need a maritime-specific curriculum. So I, I think it'll be well-received. It's just to do these kind of things, it takes a little bit of time. But we've been building a case for it, and we have the data to show the types of cases our surgeons, or at least the types of simulation and cadaver-based training our surgeons need to help them be better prepared for the maritime environment. So give me your 30-second elevator speech about why your paper is important and why people, if they haven't already, should pick it up and read it. Well, the first thing I would say is that you need to make a distinction between training and clinical skill sustainment. I think to learn how to take care of any kind of a patient, surgical patient, critically ill patient in an austere environment requires platform-specific training to be successful in that environment. And so a lot of the training that we do is so very, very important. However, the training is of limited value if the, the surgeon and the surgical team don't have the requisite skills coming into that training. And so we're at a point where I think, as demonstrated in this paper, these teams are getting very little clinical opportunities at all, and they're not getting any relevant to what their deployed mission will be if we go to war. I think we need to focus on on those those trauma burning critical care clinical opportunities before deploying, and that'll make platform-specific training that more effective. We've been speaking with Dr. Matthew D. Tadlock on Wardock's podcast. Matt, thanks again for discussing your paper and sharing your insights with us, and thank you for your service to this nation. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And now, a brief message from the chairman of the War Docs Board of Directors. Hi, I'm Major General Retired Jeff Clark, and I have the privilege to serve as chair of the War Docs Board of Directors. Let me begin by thanking AMSIS for our AMSIS War Docs partnership, Military Medicine, the International Journal of AMSIS, and specifically Dr. Steve Rothwell, the editor of our outstanding journal of military medicine. Readiness, a medically ready force and a ready medical force is central to military medicine. And anything that we want to understand and improve in medicine, and in particular military medicine, requires good research. It requires science. I want to thank the authors of these articles that are published in the Journal of Military Medicine for taking on the challenge of doing the research to understand what we know, what we don't know, and where we need to go in improving the care we provide on the battlefield. I hope these authors inspire you to ask and answer the next Ready Medical Force question and publish in the Journal of Military Medicine. Thank you for what you and your family do in service to our nation. Be safe. May God bless. Thank you for listening to War Docs. We sure hope you enjoyed it. War Docs is a nonprofit organization supported by donations from listeners like you. Please follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcasts and rate and review this episode and share the show with your contacts on social media. Find out more information about our show, our guests, and how to become a member of Team War Docs on WarDocsPodcast.com. Thank you for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.